0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 21st edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Lyft drivers filed a class action lawsuit in 2020 seeking an emergency ruling that required the company to reclassify its drivers from independent contractor to employee status as required by California AB5. They claimed that Lyft had not followed the law and asked the court for an emergency order compelling the company to do so. What makes this an emergency for the drivers is that if Lyft is finally forced to reclassify its drivers, those drivers will potentially qualify for sick pay under California law. But Lyft filed a motion to compel arbitration of the case pursuant to an arbitration agreement the drivers had signed. And the court granted the motion, so the Lyft drivers appealed the order to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. At issue in this appeal is whether Lyft drivers are engaged in interstate commerce. Therefore, if they were, they are exempt from the Federal Arbitration Act, which supersedes state law limiting the right of a company to force arbitration. The Court of Appeals ruled that the drivers were properly ordered to arbitration in the unpublished case of Rogers v. Lyft. At issue in this appeal is whether Lyft drivers are engaged in interstate commerce and therefore exempt from the Federal Arbitration Act section 1 of the federal arbitration act exempts from the act's coverage all contracts of employment of seamen railroad employees or any other class of workers engaged in foreign or interstate commerce but the ninth circuit recently decided this question in the case of capriol versus uber technology incorporated holding that ride-share drivers do not fall within the interstate commerce exemption from the FAA. Because Capriol controls the outcome in this case, the Ninth Circuit affirmed the judgment of this district court. And now our crime report. Federal officials say that the insurance industry should expect Increases in telemedicine and healthcare digitization fraud in the foreseeable future. The implementation of electronic health records and rapid expansion of telemedicine has caught the attention of the Department of Justice and lawyers representing whistleblowers, prompting rigorous criminal enforcement actions and increasing federal False Claims Act cases. The Department of Justice has traditionally been wary of telemedicine even before the COVID-19 pandemic and the accompanying rapid expansion of telehealth enforcement in the telemedicine industry was on the rise. Traditionally, Medicare's coverage of telemedicine had been extremely limited. As a result of the pandemic, however, telehealth service providers were granted broad flexibility, to provide telemedicine services, and this flexibility remains today. So now officials say the easing of restrictions stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic has prompted a dramatic increase in the use of telehealth. And it seems unlikely that the federal government will reinstate pre-pandemic restrictions given the increased popularity and reliance on telehealth services. Indeed, Congress has introduced several bipartisan bills to address post-pandemic telehealth services, signaling that utilization of telehealth services will likely remain prevalent. But back in October of 2020, the DOJ announced a telehealth enforcement action for a fraudulent DME billing scheme dubbed Operation Rubber Stamp. That scheme involved allegedly paying medical professionals to order DME, genetic and other diagnostic testing, and pain medications without sufficient patient-diagnostic interaction, resulting in a $1.5 billion in fraudulent billings. And civil False Claims Act violations have been alleged and resolved in an ongoing investigation dubbed Operation Happy Clickers which involves allegations that physicians approved orders for medically unnecessary braces and cancer genetic testing, despite many red flags that these items and services were illegitimate. And in recent years, the DOJ has pursued several False Claims Act cases related to electronic health records that have led to large settlements and highlighted various FCA risks. For example, in 2020, Practice Fusion, Incorporated, a health information technology developer, paid $145 million to resolve criminal and civil investigations relating to its electronic health record software, including a nearly $119 million FCA settlement. The resolution addressed allegations that Practice Fusion extracted unlawful kickbacks from pharmaceutical companies in exchange for implementing clinical decision support alerts in its software. All of this was designed to increase prescription drugs for their drug products. The Acting Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Division at the Department of Justice recently stated that he expects a continued focus on telehealth schemes, particularly given the expansion of telehealth during the pandemic. He also identified fraud relating to electronic health records as another area that is likely to be a focal point of future enforcement efforts. And the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General has also made clear that it is conducting significant oversight work assessing telehealth services during the public health emergency. So claims administrators should expect increased fraudulent activities in these areas going forward and take steps to minimize their risk. Carmen Hall Sirucco and her husband Antonio Sirucco who both live in Novato, were sentenced last week after pleading guilty to workers' compensation fraud charges. Both of them were sentenced to 120 days in jail, in order to pay over nine hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars in restitution to the state fund and EDD. And Florida's authorities began an investigation into Seruco Structures, a general contractor company after a worker filed a workers' compensation claim alleging to be injured on a job site. The business had not reported employees or payroll on their workers' compensation policy until this claim was filed. The investigation revealed the two committed workers' compensation insurance premium fraud by failing to report employees and payroll to Skiff leading to a premium loss of nearly $600,000. Investigators also discovered Hall and Ceruco committed payroll tax evasion, which resulted in a loss to EDD of nearly $350,000. A San Fernando Valley woman pleaded guilty to federal criminal charges for conspiring to defraud health insurance companies by causing millions of dollars in fraudulent claims to be submitted for cosmetic procedures, including Botox injections, that were not medically necessary. She owned and operated facilities that provided aesthetic services for clients, including r Med Spa in Valley Village and New Me Aesthetic and Anti-Aging Center in Woodland Hills, California. The indictment included several co-conspirators, including an insurance company SIU investigator who helped her avoid detection. Her name was Aroshnak Kadim, and she lives in Sherman Oaks. She pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud and one count of subscribing to a false income tax return. She was the last of the group that was prosecuted to plead guilty. Kadem caused patients to visit her clinics to receive cosmetic procedures including the Botox injections, facials, and laser hair removal and she knew these procedures were not covered by health insurers. Nonetheless, health insurance information from these patients was provided to the insurance biller to go ahead and submit bills to insurance for payment. Then based on the amount that the health insurers paid on those false and fraudulent claims, Karem and others would calculate an amount, which the co conspirators referred to as a credit, that the patients could use to receive free or discounted cosmetic procedures from the clinics. Those patients would then come into the clinics to receive the free or discounted cosmetic procedures. Prosecutors estimate the amounts paid could be as much as $8 million, and Karem failed to report. This income on her income tax returns, which caused a total tax loss in excess of $450,000. A June 27th sentencing hearing has been scheduled, at which time she will face a statutory maximum sentence of 13 years in federal prison. And one of her co-conspirators, Gary Jasmigian, who lives in Santa Clarita, and who was a former senior investigator at the Anthem Special Investigations Unit, previously pleaded guilty, and was also sentenced to 18 months in federal prison. Jasmijian allegedly assisted KADEM and others by providing them with confidential Anthem information that helped them submit fraudulent bills to Anthem. The remaining three defendants in this case each have pled guilty. And in regulatory news, COVID misinformation wars have now reached the California legislature. Two California, Democratic lawmakers took separate aim at what they call pandemic disinformation spread through social media platforms, rejecting concerns that their legislation might carry free speech or business privacy considerations. Assemblyman Ivan Lowe said his bill would label doctors promoting of misinformation or disinformation about COVID-19 to the public as unprofessional conduct that could draw disciplinary action from the California Medical Board. Disinformation is generally considered to be intentional or deliberate falsehoods, while misinformation can be inadvertent. The California Medical Association has not taken a position on his bill. The legislation differs from efforts in some other states like Florida and Tennessee where Republican lawmakers have resisted doctor discipline proposals for so-called misinformation. Tennessee's Board of Medical Examiners unanimously adopted a statement That said doctors spreading COVID misinformation, such as suggesting that vaccines contain microchips, could jeopardize their license to practice. But before any physicians could be reprimanded for spreading falsehoods about COVID-19 vaccines or treatments, Republican lawmakers threatened to disband the medical medical board. The growing tension in Tennessee between lawmakers and the state's medical board may be the most prominent example in the country. But the Federation of State Medical Boards, which created language adopted by at least 15 state boards, is tracking legislation introduced by Republicans in at least 14 states that would restrict a medical board's authority to discipline doctors for their advice on covid In Florida, a Republican-sponsored bill making its way through the state legislature proposes to ban medical boards from revoking or threatening to revoke doctors' licenses for what they say unless direct physical harm of a patient occurred. And some medical boards have opted against taking a public stand against misinformation. The Alabama Board of Medical Examiners discussed signing on to the Federation's statement. But after debating the potential legal ramifications in a private executive session, the board opted not to act. And a few physician groups are resisting attempts to root out misinformation, including the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, known for its stands against government regulation. And the city of West Covina has opted out of services from the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. For some counties and cities that share a public health agency with other local governments, differences over mask mandates, business restrictions, and other COVID preventative measures have strained those partnerships. At least two have been pushed past the breaking point. Both the City of West Covina in California and Douglas County, Colorado, plan to contract some of their health services to private entities. The West Covina City Council has voted to terminate its relationship with the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health over disagreements about COVID shutdowns. West Covina officials have criticized the County Health Department's COVID restrictions as a one-size-fits-all approach that may work for the second-largest city in the U.S., but not for their suburb of about 110,000 people. West Covina plans to join Long Beach, Pasadena, and Berkeley as one of a small number of California cities with its own health agency. West Covina Councilman Tony Wu and area family physician Dr. Basil Chart are leading efforts to form the city's own department. And in Douglas County, Colorado, many residents had opposed mask mandate guidance from the Tri-County Health Department, a partnership among Adams, Arapaho, and Douglas Counties. Tri-County issued a mask order for the county's school districts in September 2021, And within days, conservative Douglas County announced its commissioners had voted unanimously to form its own health department. Douglas County is phasing out of the partnership with plans to exit entirely by the end of this year, and it has already taken over many of its own COVID relief efforts from Tri-County. The DWC posted its Annual Report of Inventory Reminder, hoping to remind claims administrators that the Annual Report of Inventory must be submitted by April 1 for claims reported in the calendar year 2021. Regulations require claims administrators to file the Annual Report with the DWC, indicating the number of claims reported at each adjusting location for the preceding calendar year. Even if no claims were reported in the prior year, the report must be completed and submitted to the audit unit unless its requirement has been waived by the DWC. And when requirements are waived, claims administrators must file an annual report of adjusting locations. Claims administrators are required to report any change in the information reported within 45 days of the effective date of the change. Penalties of up to $500 per location for failure to timely file this report of inventory may be assessed under the regulations. The form for 2021 is located on the DWC website under the Audit and Enforcement Unit page. And questions about submission of the ARI or the Annual Report of Adjusting Locations may be directed to the Audit Unit. The Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau, in collaboration with a number of other workers' compensation rating bureaus, has released a report on COVID-19's impact on workers' compensation. This multi-bureau collaboration resulted in the creation of a COVID-19 claims database, which enabled the development of a more comprehensive view of COVID-19 claim characteristics and trends. In California, COVID-19 claims represent 9% of total claim counts and 6% of total incurred losses. Indemnity-only claims emerged as a significant share of reported COVID-19 claims. In aggregate, COVID-19 claims that remained open have relatively higher case reserves due to the uncertainty of COVID-19 infections, later than average accident dates, and the timing of the various waves of the pandemic. COVID-19 indemnity claims closed more quickly than non-COVID-19 indemnity claims, partly driven by the large share of indemnity-only claims. Despite the higher closure rate, the ratio of paid-to-paid-plus-case-incurred severities on COVID-19 claims is lower when compared with that for non-COVID-19 claims. And a new COVID workers' compensation claim study has just been published in the February issue of the Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. The objective of this study was to examine the attributes associated with long-duration COVID-19 workers' compensation claims. The study was conducted on more than 13,000 COVID-19 workers' compensation claims accepted by a workers' compensation insurance carrier. The authors concluded by saying age at the time of infection was the major factor associated with prolonged impairment and high costs of COVID-19-related work comp claims. And the vax wars are heating up as Kern County is trying to recruit some of Los Angeles' deputy sheriffs who are part of about 4,000 unvaccinated employees who are about to be fired by the county of Los Angeles. The Kern County Sheriff's Office released a video last week inviting applications from deputies within Los Angeles County where officials passed an order that could lead to the terminations of thousands of county workers who have not received the COVID-19 vaccine or provided a religious or medical exemption. Vaccination rates inside the LA Sheriff's Department have lagged far below that of the public, with just 54% of workers fully vaccinated despite a vaccination mandate for county employees. Last week, the County Board of Supervisors moved to shift vaccine mandate enforcement power away from LA County Sheriff Alex Villanueva. Villanueva, who has criticized mask orders and said he will not fire workers who refuse the vaccine, said such an act could lead to more than 4,000 unvaccinated deputies losing their jobs. The sheriff's office in Kern County responded with its video the next day. The battle over vaccine mandates for law enforcement in Southern California highlights the divide over COVID health rules across the state. Kern County does not require vaccinations for its workers. Its sheriff said in a press conference that he does not know how many of his department employees are vaccinated. Just 52% of Kern County residents as a whole are vaccinated, compared to 70% of L.A. County residents. As Los Angeles County residents face rising crime and rising numbers of homelessness, Sheriff Alex Villanueva is speaking out against what he describes as a political push fueled by police activists to lay off 4,000 department employees of the sheriff who have not been vaccinated against the coronavirus. And in other industry news, as the world gets closer to the eventual end of the pandemic, white-collar workers worldwide are working remotely, and last year most said that they wanted to keep that agreement with employers. According to a poll by Accenture Research last year, Just 3% of white-collar workers wanted to return to the office five days a week. After surveying nearly 10,000 people around the world last year across areas including finance, technology, and energy, a full 86% of employees wanted to work from home at least two days a week. Workers reported a preference for commuting into cities on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Many banks geared up for flexible working after two years of COVID lockdowns such as Citigroup, HSBC Holdings, and NatWest Group, allowing hybrid working for many staff. Some fintech companies like Revolut Limited and iGen Technologies Limited are even allowing staff to work entirely remotely. NatWest expects around 87% of its 60,000 staff to split work between home and the office in the longer term. In theory, Hybrid offers the best deal for both employer and employee. It combines pre-COVID-19 patterns of office-based working with remote days and a working schedule that would allow both in-person collaboration and team building as well as greater flexibility in the opportunity for focused work at home. But this year, the love of fear with hybrid work may be fading. The BBC claims that emerging data is beginning to back up anecdotal evidence. Many workers report that hybrid work is emotionally draining. In a recent global study by Seattle-based employee management platform TinyPulse, More than 80% of people leaders reported that such a setup was exhausting for employees. Workers, too, reported hybrid was more emotionally taxing than fully remote arrangements and even full-time office-based work. An industrial organizational psychologist and people scientist at Tiny Pulse, based in California, said there was a feeling that hybrid would be the best of both worlds. For bosses, it means they retain a sense of control and that they can see their workers in person. For employees, it offers more flexibility than full-time in the office and means they can work safely during the pandemic. However, as the novelty of hybrid working has faded, so too has worker enthusiasm. The researchers found that people were less positive about hybrid through 2021 as the year went on. An optimism among workers soon gave way to fatigue. 72% reported exhaustion from working hybrid, nearly double the figures for fully remote employees and also greater than those based fully in the office. It's the disruption to employees' daily routines and the staccato nature of hybrid that workers find so tiring. Physically carrying work back and forth between home and the office may also come with a psychological impact for some. A recent study found 20% of UK workers reported struggling to adapt to hybrid and the permeable boundaries between home and work was cited as a major factor. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcasts, and other utilities in our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Minuki and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.